Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Theology online and Wikipedia says it has 63 categories. So, uh, abstinence, any Mayim, anachronism, anthropomism, uh, you know, all the way down to the Zohar, and anyway. But so I had to really narrow it down, of course. So I was interested in finding out more of um, Maimonides and the time. Uh, when the Kabbalists came, and, and it sort of seems like the, the Kabbalists split off from Maimonides' way of thought. Maybe you can talk more about that. <coughs> well, it's a very powerful, very nuanced question. By the way, it would be great if, as we're going around, we just say each other's names, Tree. Um, so Maimonides and theology has filled up lifetimes of scholarship. The difference between Maimonides and the Kabbalists is also very significant, and in fact he came after a long strain of mysticism, and his um, Maimonides' approach was a rationalist approach. He um, was part of a grand renaissance where Jews and Muslims and philosophers in general really were intrigued and committed to the proof of truth. Uh, it's an Aristotelian and neo-Aristotelian approach such that Maimonides um, believed, uh, and Moshe Halbertal has a new book really making this clear, that he had the ability to perceive truth in a way that no one else in his generation still had the ability to do. And so uh, he was about proving the truth of God's existence, but his way of doing it was by uh, a negative theology, by saying God is not. So, if you've ever sung the song Yigdal, which is actually a beautiful poem in the Siddur, in the prayer book, um, it's a list, it's a poetic rendition of Maimonides' negative theology. Ein lo guf, no guf. God has no semblance of a body, no body, meaning God is not corporeal. So, his way of proving was of saying what God wasn't. And whatever would be left when you were done saying what isn't is God. Um, and the problem of my, with Maimonides, and this is now me speaking in response to that, is that it made God cold. It's not that Maimonides believed in a cold way, but by reducing theology to logic, the heart of Judaism in some ways was threatened. And the Kabbalists, who predated by far Maimonides, um, asserted for the first time the theology of the Zohar, right, this classic canon of Jewish mysticism, which was made very, very hidden throughout its transmissions, um, it was an, a moment of emergency because Maimonides began to take on. He was a charismatic, powerful voice, resonant throughout the Jewish world, really, and because he was becoming contagious, meaning logic was becoming contagious, 
they came out basically as Kabbalists. So it's not that Kabbalah was new, but the response of Kabbalah to Maimonides' power was to reveal themselves to the world, and an ecstatic, not proof-based theology uh, became much more public. It was always dormant. It certainly is there in the Torah and the Tanakh, um, but Maimonides sort of really did change the way people were reading the Bible, and then they, in response, combated Maimonides. And there's, there are more than 63 categories of theology now, because if you imagine not only the joke about Jews not agreeing, right, two Jews, three opinions, if we're talking about God, and another name for God is the infinite, there have to be at least an infinite number of ways of approaching Reincarnation, how does that fit in, in Jewish theology? So it's a, again, these, this is going to be a good night. Um, <laughs> so reincarnation has many different, also many different ways of being understood. In Hebrew, one of the classic ways of understanding reincarnation is called Gilgul Neshamot, the, the re, the retran, it's the transmigration of souls, really. Um, so reincarnation is also different from resurrection, which is Tchiat HaMetim. Both are present in Jewish thought. One is much more mainstream, though for modern Jews, they both sound uh, far away uh, from, um, from a person's ideology. Not necessarily anyone in the rooms, but you know, when I talk about the second blessing of the Amidah, every Amidah we say, being affirming God's bringing the dead back to life, the, the look I always get from people, like, no, I don't pray that, and I say, Actually, when you turn to page 156b, you do, right? So, resurrection, different than reincarnation, but not so far away from the idea that death is temporary. So, there are, uh, mostly within um, Kabbalistic notions, but not only there, the idea that um, the spirit of a great person in the past is within someone, uh, is is actually not so uncommon when you really look at um, Jewish tradition. The transmigration of souls, the idea that my soul will be perfected each time it comes back, that's not as prevalent, but it's it's also not unheard of in tradition. So part of what will come clear, I think, with every question is that Jewish tradition is as wide as the world's traditions. Theology, even if we call it Jewish theology, has much more in common with world, the world's approach to the cosmos than it has different. There are significant differences, but if it's out there, it's probably in here. So what makes a notion of Jewish reincarnation Jewish? That a Jew affirms it. Right? And so I hope that, and this is a little bit soapboxy, right? but as opposed to narratives of the past where we only hope that the good Jews would come back, Right? I hope that good people will come back and maybe we'll be blessed as a Jewish people to have the spirit of a Gandhi, you know, within. And maybe the greatness of the past can be collected and it's a spirit that connects all people. So I would hesitate from going more specifically into it, but if you're looking for a short story on it, Nathan Englander has a really great one in for the relief of unbearable urges. 
Um, one of the short stories is called The Gilgul on Park Avenue. And it is a disturbing, funny, powerful story that suddenly someone who isn't Jewish is in the back seat of a cab in New York and suddenly realizes he's Jewish. And, he, you know, he's trying to prove it by just being who he suddenly is, which is another way of saying he, he recognized himself. So the, the story is meant to be farcical, but who's to deny that it could be true? So picking up, this is me, Paul, picking up on your ways in which Jewish theology differs from other theological structures or philosophies, certain practices say, as for example, the emphasis on Christianity, including the Virgin and Mary, which is much less so in, in Jewish theology, because you can pay different prices than you give up for a virgin, not a virgin, or, or abortion. Um, how do you think, or why do you think those differences evolve? Yeah. I mean, the person to really answer that would be Robert Bella, who just died. He's, he was a professor uh, at Cal, a teacher of Anne Swidler and countless others. Um, in terms of what human evolution, biological evolution, and the evolution of religion has in common. So the traits that any one family within the larger human family has and, and how they've been transmitted and how we cultivate certain qualities and how monotheism isn't exactly the worship of an invisible unified presence but more about a shared purpose in the universe, how Jewish notions of monotheism actually have more in common with ancient Mesopotamian uh, worship systems where you actually have a tree who is the consort of God and that tree is called Asherah. Right, so the more we look into the roots of what makes us different, the more we realize that we aren't who we think we were. So part of the answer to your question has to be based on enhancing our own befuddlement. Right? It shouldn't be so clear what a Jewish theology, when it comes to a question of abortion, is. From a modern political standpoint, I certainly have my own strong opinions about it. And I think that Jewish theology has a fairly strong um, approach, specifically within the question of abortion, that is theological, as to when life begins, right? Because from in the ancient world, the notion that um, a newly fertilized egg, and of course they didn't know what that meant, but the first 30 days of a pregnancy, a fetus is considered just to be, uh, this is not nice to say from a modern, nor emotional, nor pastoral standpoint, but from a halachic standpoint, the Jewish legal one, it's considered to be part of the innards of the mother just water in her innards is what it's in Hebrew. Um, now, of course, ultrasounds make that much more complicated. Hearing a heartbeat at whatever point makes that much more complicated. But Jewish tradition had a notion of theology based on what I believe to be a compassionate response to infant mortality. So because of the reality of losing babies all the time, losing pregnancies all the time, which was much more common in the ancient world, and we talk about less, but it's very common because miscarriage is a very common experience. And when we don't talk about it, it's even harder, uh, I think, as a man, as if I can say. Um, so why a theology would be different from within Judaism? I hope that compassion is the prevalent approach to all theologies. But a compassionate response to abortion is that that's not life lost. That's part of my body that hasn't functioned in the way that I prayed. So why that would be different between Christianity and Judaism, I can't say, but I also couldn't say that Judaism has one approach. I, I thought in Judaism that it, to 
say the mother's life, that abortion was permitted? Yes. In, in, in any stage? Uh, the only part where it's very, it gets very complicated from a Jewish legal slash ethical point of view is literally when the baby has partially emerged and hasn't completely emerged. But until that point, yes, the, the very, very strong majority of all Jewish legal opinions do say that to save the mother's life, that's the only thing that matters. The interpretation of what saving the mother's life has a very, very lively debate life in Jewish law, because what if a woman's, what if a mother's psychological health is at risk? Right? That actually takes a very, very strong part in most decisions. And I have been approached with that question. It's been shocking to me that, that pregnant women have come and actually asked me that question. I never really thought that it was practical when I was learning it. But the truth is, you know, when theology plays a part in affirming a person's actual needs, their physiological needs, right? Interpreting what saving life means actually has relevance. The, the question of um, hoping someone is a virgin when they're married, uh, what I'll say to that is that Judaism has just as much problematics as every other religion, at least as far as I've explored the, the sources. I'll leave abortion to be not easier to talk about, but more commonly discussed. After that, uh, after that three-day period that you're referring to, mm -hmm. where you don't have to take shiva, I know up until that point too. What is a, let's say, not even a fetus at that point, just a, an embryo? What does that become? Uh, more than water in its mother's innards, right? Jewish law has evolved over time. The more we learn physiologically as well, because to be honest, um, until fairly recently, there were no rituals for a miscarriage, and in fact, there were no rituals for stillbirth. Right? There was no burial for stillbirth. If the child didn't live up to a month, there were no rituals in ancient tradition. And I would say from a compassionate place as much as I can that perhaps it's because it was so common and it was so hard to deal with. But having now um, been with families who have suffered stillbirths, there has to be a ritual, and there is a theology, and there is loss that needs to be marked differently perhaps than we mark someone who lives a full life, whatever that means. Um, but it's, you know, the categories of Jewish practice and thought are so complicated to implement. So what happens after 30 days? In a practical sense, every case is so radically different. What if I know that the couple has been struggling to become pregnant for so long? And this loss might be so many attempts for them, and this might be, this was going to be our last try. Now, whether or not it turns out to be their last try, there are couples in our community who are going through that very thing right now. So that loss is much more than any tradition could have understood in advance. And so I think it's hard to apply these things when it's a theory. I'm, I'm always interested in your own thoughts about theology, and I, I'm not holding any cons notion of consistency in hand. At one point, I said to you that I thought that if everyone in the world, in, in the same second, did one good action, and it could be a little picking up a piece of paper or something, that if everyone in that moment did that, that would be my notion of God. And you said my theology, exactly. And, and another point, very early on, you gave a wonderful talk where you talked about theology as having something to do with imagination. I don't know what that meant, but I just wonder if you could comment on what where you are with it? Or? Sure. 
Well, where I am is um, <coughs> is fairly consistent with what you're remembering. Uh, it's what? Fairly consistent oh. with what you're remembering, or maybe you're so compelling in the way that you remember me, but I want to be that. Um, um, I believe that God is the co collective potential of the human imagination. Oh, okay, so that's an exposure. And what I mean by that takes some very serious unpacking. Can you say it again? Sure. I believe that God is the collective potential of the human imagination. Um, I delivered this actually as a Yom Kippur drush two or three years ago. Um, and what that means in short, although clearly it's, it's not short, and it's also inadequate because any definition of God inherently is inadequate, at least in my, in my concept. I give it the best words that I can muster. So collective potential means all people, but it doesn't mean all people alive now. It means all people who ever live and all people who will ever live. And so you can't, I can't point to that God. Um, and the collective potential of the human imagination also means that as opposed to some other theologies, I don't have a theology of the rock as a participant in God. Or even of animals as participants in God. I do believe that one of the significant, if not the significant difference of being a human being is a moral imagination. And so the collective potential of the human imagination is everything we have ever ached about and for, collected is God. So I can be Maimonides about that. Here's what God isn't in my theology. God isn't a being with a discernible will. God doesn't intervene sometimes in history and sometimes not. Part of the reason for my theology, um, having only lived as witness to the horrors that I have witnessed, um, which is less time than others and less immediate than many, but I remember um, I was ordained in 2002, spring of 2002, being in Manhattan in September of 2001, and I'd already given a lot of thought to my theology. In fact, I was asked by um, my rabbinical school admissions committee by Alan Kensky, who's a dear, dear teacher of mine, was the one who on the committee said, Mr. Creditor, I've read your theology essay. You don't really have a theology. <laughs> and I said to him, I'm actually in Rabbi Neil Gilman's class right now. He's a renowned theologian. I said, it's a little bit up in the air for me right now. Um, and through rabbinical school, that was some of my biggest internal work. Um, and I remember going through 9-11, and just having no words for it, being in complete shock, and in some ways still am. Um, and hearing Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People, uh, answer a question. Someone said, where was God on 9-11? And his answer, yeah, I mean, he gave much dignity to the question, was very humble in the way he answered, but said God was holding up the rafters of the towers so that more people could get out. And at first, my heart just surged with hope and with love. That was a beautiful response. And then um, it occurred to me, if God is God, why did the towers come down at all? And couldn't God hold the hijackers back? And they thought they were acting in the name of God, or some ultimate truth, or some absolute truth. Um, and the notion that God would intervene in history suddenly became very clear to me as a choice between saving some people and not saving others. Um, that's not the only reason. My theology wasn't born on 9-11, but it really did 
clarify for me a lot of what I've been feeling. Um, and I also am influenced by teachers like Rabbi Erwin Kula, who have had a magnificent impact on many people. He says in a documentary called Time for a New God, it's an 18-minute documentary that could change anyone's life. Um, while walking down the boardwalk, Coney Island, with all these images and all this music, walking barefoot, talking about God. It's a beautifully, beautifully done documentary, or monologue, really. He says, when I believe I have more God than you, I get a gun. And I, I worry about our world having a whole lot of that God. And I've decided, at least for myself, that can't be the God I talk to. Certainly not the God I believe in, whatever belief means. And so where I am for now is uh, in pain all the time, because that God that, that is the collective potential is not as present in people's faith lives nor in the world at large. I see people worshiping their absolutes in a very, very frightening way. And so, you know, someone asked me recently, so do you say that line, you know, that God is the collective potential of the human imagination, do you say that to get the atheists in the door? but you actually believe the traditional Siddur or the, the Torah. Um, you believe in that God. And I was sort of surprised that I actually believe those words. That when I'm praying, I pray in a, you know, I die in a very traditional way. The Siddur is the Siddur, the Torah is the Torah. But when I'm davening, when I'm praying, I actually am praying that humanity will act in the way that we yearn. Right? So there might be a danger in that sense, because it's my subjective notion of what should be. But that's actually what I believe God is. And I also take comfort in the idea that if I'm wrong, and my theology is absolutely wrong, when I die, the things that my God call me to do should make any God proud. So if I'm wrong about theology, Judaism has never had a dogma. Nope litmus test of belief. So I don't mind being wrong as long as my actions are worthy. I think this is relating. My name is Hiba. So uh, I've been also thinking about uh, God, and I think when, when difficult things happen, that's when you know, I sort of have these questions. And I, I, it seems that um, the Judaism that I know is... Um, a lot of praise for God and being grateful, which I think is very you know, useful, personally. Um, but then when bad things happen, or let's say someone dies, we you know, both Aaron and I, we, we, you know, we say a blessing to God. And um, it seems like uh, um, we always give God the benefit of the doubt, you know, when good things happen, when bad things happen. So I guess I'm wondering, where's, where's the room for sort of anger? Everywhere. My answer is everywhere. And I, I think that the Torah models that. You know, with Stoman Amorah, I saw that in Gemara where God says to God's self, which is one of the few times we see inside God's mind, whatever that means. So the Torah says, God says to God's self, how could I keep from my beloved friend Avram what I'm planning to do? So God goes and tells Avram. And Avram says, how dare you? Chalilalach, shame on you. The judge of all the earth shouldn't do justice. Um, and that's a biblical source for what becomes a very serious Jewish tradition. One of the big differences, and this gets sort of to what we were saying before, 
one of the big differences between a traditional Jewish, not traditional Jewish belief, because I don't want to point to a traditional Jewish belief, but a traditional Jewish mode of encountering God is the right and responsibility of the human being to speak their heart right back. Um, and so the notion of submission, well, it's there, but not really. The name God, the name Yisrael, is someone who fights with God, right? And so there are those who say that challenging God doesn't feel religious. That is not a very Jewish sentiment. Challenging God is perhaps the most Jewish we get, especially in moments of pain, because now speaking combination of pastorally and whatever else, God's strong enough to take it. And the way that I do articulate, not when I'm speaking about my theology, but speaking with God language, uh, which is not speaking for God, but speaking within, you know, just the traditional sphere that we inhabit, um, is that God is in pain when we're in pain. And that the death of any human being, even after a long, full life, is horrible. How much more so the oncology ward in a hospital. God should rage at death. Um, and so, where's the place for anger at God? I don't think there isn't a place where anger at God shouldn't be allowed. I think the human spirit is meant to be affirmed. And when I rage at God, I am an image of God raging at God. And so God has a mirror in our faces, and therefore our hearts, maybe not therefore, but for me therefore, our hearts, when they rage, are God's heart raging. Jan, so taking what you said is you don't believe that, if I heard it correctly, that God just discriminately or indiscriminately intervenes in human events. Um, why should we as Jews pray to God for him, for God to do so, for God to heal the ill, for God to bring peace to, to Israel, for whatever uh, intervention it is that we pray to God for? So my short answer is sort of an integration of some of what we've been talking about already. One of them is because that's what we need. We need peace. We need healing. So I pray to God for the things that we need because we need them, not because I think God will do them. And by pouring out the raw, real needs that we have, uh, I, especially because Jewish prayer mostly happens in the collective, there's a lot of individual prayer too, but a lot of what we experience together is collective prayer, minyan, all sorts of different Jewish traditions. And so when I call out for peace, when I cry praying for the peace of Jerusalem, or the peace in Ramallah, like, there needs to be peace in the world. And I don't, since I don't believe in a God who's going to make it happen, we have to make it happen. And the way to remind ourselves in the most raw, primal way that it needs to happen is to pray. Because we pray, you know, min ma'amakim, from the depths of us. You know, when I when I call out a page number and I'm, my heart's not in it, that's not prayer. That's being present while everyone prays. But when I'm praying from the from ecstasy or wonder, amazement or pain, sadness, that's prayer when my emotions are in it. So 
Why pray to God? For, for at least that reason, because it is a release of the human spirit that things be better. To call, to call out for comfort, to call out for another. Right? It's one of the reasons I'm glad that Jewish prayer happens in company. Because I might be alone. It's, I always quote Billy Joel on this. Right? They're sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. Right? We all show up at the bar and pray. Hopefully that's all we do. Right? <laughs> because I might be existentially alone in, what I, in, in the ways that I suffer. But if I can be near you as we both suffer, at least I've got you. Right? Which means I'm less alone in the world. And to the other thing, you know, calling out for prayer, uh, calling out for healing, I'm in this very interesting position every Shabbat and sometimes weekdays also, where we get to the Mishaberach. We're in the Torah service and we call out for healing. We all sing the beginning together, and then I walk around the room looking one person in the eye at a time so that they can say someone's name out loud when they know someone in need of healing. What's so weird is that they're, they're looking, I'm looking at you because we're in the room together a lot, you're looking at me. I can't do anything, except that in that moment, it's not really me walking around if I could be so whatever. It's, it's a, something happens in the room, and I don't know how to explain. It doesn't happen every time, but I feel like my job is to look every person right in their eyes, let them say that person's name, and take it in and do my best to hold it until the moment where I get full circle and we just pour it out. There's something happening in the space, and I, I don't believe in an external God. I believe that we're all actualizing, I'm so Berkeley now, we're all <laughs> actualizing the God within to hold the pain and the healing at once and to call for it to be in the world. And who's to say that that doesn't make a difference? You know, I've offered that Misha Berach plenty of times such that it doesn't make the difference. I've seen the prayers not work. So I don't have any faith that it's going to work. But I do have faith that something happens in that room in that moment. So, Rabbi, last question. Um, so, this theology uh, that we're speaking about now, how, how do you fit in with traditional theology of a God that speaks to Moshe and God that gives commandments, which we all follow as well? Sure. Well, first of all, halavai. Commandments that we all follow as well. Okay, so uh, I'd even satisfied. I'd be satisfied with that. We all want to follow. Um, so, how does my theology fit into a, a sort of a biblical theology? Let's say, you know, part of that is recognizing what a biblical theology isn't. So, Jack Miles was a religion editor at the New York Times, and he has a great book called God: A Biography, and in it he traces God the character from throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the Tanakh, where God is omnipresent at the beginning, very, very involved, frequently involved, as the Torah you know, unfolds with family and Exodus and Sinai and desert. And as you follow this God as a character through the Tanakh, God appears less and less, does less and less. So that fits into a Kabbalistic notion of Tzimtzum, that little by little God contracts to make space for human free will and human action, human history. Um, so if I were responding to your question in that context, it could be that my notion of God is the way that God grows, or the way that God's interaction with the world changes over time, such that God self-transforms. Right? So for Abraham Joshua Heschel, right, it is transitive concern, that phrase that defines God's love. 
Transitive concern means it's not self-concern that leads me to do what I do in the world. It's concern for you, for every other in the world that leads me to do what I do, which is a way of saying that in order for God's will for human, the world's welfare to be, for us to be okay, in order for that to happen, I have to act on behalf of God. So the difference between my theology and that organic traditional Jewish theology might not be so different. When I, however, if you were to ask, how does my theology interpret the events of the Torah, which is different than your question, but related, what I would say is, we are always aching for sense in the world, and the way that we make sense of the world is by interpreting what we experience and sharing it generation to generation. So I remember, you know, in college and rabbinical school, spending a lot of time debating the historicity of the Torah. Did it happen? Does archaeology prove the Davidic kingdoms? And there are people who place a lot of weight in that. I think it's more political than religious when people are doing that. Whoever has the lowest strata of building in Jerusalem, you know, would claim rights to the land from a theological, historical standpoint. I find that to be very problematic, especially because my belief structure isn't based on proof. So how does my theology interpret the Torah as our sacred center of human yearning? It's a human document, but the people who wrote it were aching from their godliest parts as it poured out. So I don't believe in the notion of divine inspiration where God gives me the words and I put them down. In that case, I'm a transcriber. But I do believe that as we ache for sense and meaning and hope in the world, and as we go through our own traumatic particular history, the Torah is what happens. So do I know what happened at Sinai? No. Does it matter what happened at Sinai? Yeah. Does, does it matter that Sinai happened? No. But how we hold Sinai as Jews matters a whole lot. It influences everything we do, everything that we are. And before someone brought up the tie on top of the commandments, my question was going to be about the commandments. How in a modern society where the commandments actually cover the aspect of society, mm. how does it fit? How, how, how because you said Alibi, right? Which means <laughs> it's not that close. How does that theology fit into functioning of an orderly society? Let me see if I understand your question. Are you asking how my theology fits into mitzvot and how that fits into society? Yes, but yours, you can explain yours. What about us? I don't know about us. Well, I'm talking about us in terms of how can we? Yeah. Can we do that? I mean, I know we don't. <laughs> That's what I liked about you. The beginning of your answer. The, the halavai. Yeah. Yeah, halavai. For those who don't know, halavai means if only people yeah. would ache to do mitzvot in the world. Um, so, you know, I think that every family has its idiosyncratic traditions. Right. So, growing up, I wasn't allowed to walk over my sisters. We were playing, I couldn't walk over them. And if I did, my mom would absolutely make us walk right back okay. over in reverse. <laughs> When we set the furniture in our rooms, the head never faces the door. When we move into a home, we bring salt and bread. And there are all sorts of traditions. 
that there's no question they aren't mitzvot, and that's why I'll start with them, but they are absolutely pivotal to a family's sense of self, um, naming after relatives who have died. Right? That's another. It's so powerful. And to be a little bit silly, but for some people it's so emotional, the melody that's used for a certain prayer. Right? It is pivotal. It is commanding. So part of what I want to say is that these rituals, these obligatory rituals, in other words, mitzvot, really, what Mordechai Kaplan called folkways, right? as, a, as a translation of mitzvah, um, they are compelling in ways that we could never walk away from. It's not really a choice. And if I do choose, even today, I'm playing with my children, if by accident I walk over one of them, something hurts me. It really hurts. I've, I've acquired that. It's become part of my DNA. Do I believe that something actually, it's like step on the crack, you fall and break your back. Do I believe that something like that is real? I don't know if I believe it's real, but somehow it calls, it calls me to a mindfulness in that encounter. And so I would use that same framework to talk about mitzvot. When I go into a restaurant, I'll go into a restaurant that isn't a kosher restaurant and make kosher choices. Do I believe that there's a God who's watching me upset if I choose to eat something that isn't kosher? No. Do I believe it is a sin in this very Jewish, people think it's Catholic, but it's also quite Jewish, notion of sin? Do I believe that I am sinning? I'm violating a Jewish norm, but the moral value of sin doesn't feel, that doesn't feel right. Um, but when I violate a Jewish norm, what I feel like is I'm stepping outside of my family's heart. So what is the way for a modern Jewish sensibility of mitzvah to encounter society and to work within it, I think we'd be much poorer as a world if faith traditions lost their beauty. And so I think that it, it's, it behooves a Jew, behooves any part of a Jewish family, to act with their heart, to be part of it. Now, is that going to be monolithic? No, because... The Bubba Mices in my family are different than the Bubba Mices in somebody else's. In fact, I'm only sounding like an Ashkenazi when I say Bubba Mices anyway. I should say Minagim, right? Traditions. And so part of what needs to happen, you know, someone could say, what is, what's the gift of Sephardic Halakha to the Jewish world? And then therefore, what could the gift of Sephardic Halakha be to the world? The answer would be similar, right? The, the majesty of this particular version of who we are is vital in the world, and for an Ashkenazi population, which we aren't entirely, but are mostly, if we would learn the flexibility of Sephardic Halakha, right, to be traditional without judging people by what's in a book, right, that notion of tradition is very Sephardic, right? Sephardic Halakha has historically been much more flexible than Ashkenazi Halakha. If we could recover that, then our experience of the world would also be different because on the street, when we encountered each other, we'd be much slower to judge someone else for what they do. So I think commandedness for a modern Jew is a way of encountering the world in a mindful way. Um, I'm What makes you com what makes you um, confident, comfortable that your theology isn't 
a result of acute yearning for God. And if the belief that God is an infinite God, your definition erases that infinite. Because it's the number of people in this world, born, died, yet to be born, is still a finite number, as large as it is. And then my corollary question, or my challenge is, do you then say, there's, there, is there room in the theology for miracle? There can be, by your definition, extraordinary change and good brought in the world collectively. But a miracle is something different. Let me see if I'll be able to address both. They're both profound. Um, and thank you for them. By the way, this is Charlene. This is I'm Charlene. Charlene. Um, to your first, I am confident that my theology is born of acute yearning for God. Um, and I yearn for the number of human beings to be born, to be infinite. And therefore, my hope in God is that you're wrong. But that's just hope and yearning. All of the work that I do is toward that goal. Um, which some could interpret as serving God. I wouldn't mind that language. Nor would I be upset if people said, all you're about is people. Because the line between the two is problematic for me. Um, and to the question, I think that will be for the first. And so for the second question about what are miracles, because there can be extraordinary goodness and that's not a miracle, I would say that extraordinary goodness would be good enough. And the place of miracles in this world, Jewish tradition says, in Somchimalanes, we don't rely on miracles. You can't count on them. Now, I'd also be lying to say that when it comes to moments of desperation, there was an 8.2 earthquake tonight, right? Right next to Chile and Ecuador. And there's a tsunami warning already in place. And we don't know the news yet. To say that I don't pray for God to stop the tsunami, I pray for God to stop the tsunami. Is that actually my theology? No. Is it a primal response to a universe where bad happens? Absolutely. Would I be upset to be wrong and God actually would stop the tsunami? No, I'd be thrilled to be wrong. I won't mind being wrong. But because I'm not going to rely on miracles and because this world requires incredible human righteousness that has yet to emerge, my theology is one that has us see greater than self as the goal and self as the means and the collection of selves to be the ultimate way forward. More sure. If you can't turn to God, though, if you're if the same kind of thing is the meaning you should bear up, it's the same thing as the building is falling down, it falls to me into the same category. Um, uh, why would you even... Why would you even think of asking God to, if there's forces nature, to stop the tsunami? I, I read that there, they don't know yet if there's going to be a tsunami, but why... No, there were seven foot waves, right, right when we got here. Yeah. yeah. Well, those waves are going to come. 
there, there's not going to be a ham, to my knowledge, that's going to come and say, well, it's not going to wash ashore and kill people. But I guess what might be asked is the people escape, have enough warning to escape, but that has to do with man to man, not God to man, I think. Let me say this. I, I think, think. I, I think that calling out to the universe to stop the badness is mm -hmm. a primal reaction that has its place. Um, but, you know, I'm a national board member of American Jewish World Service. Haiti needed to have an infrastructure so that the earthquake didn't crumble everyone. And it doesn't because the government doesn't take care of its people. And the notion that in California we have retrofit, retrofit laws and a better infrastructure such that people won't die when things do happen means that it is a human responsibility to take care of each other. Now, why call out to God? When I lobby our Congress people to take care of each other, to help us take care of each other through infrastructure supports and, you know, just taxation and all the things that in the last couple of weeks some of us have been doing, I'm turning to them because in that moment they wield God's power. Thank God for a rotation of elected officials because I'm not confident that they're actually trying to wield God's power in the way that I believe they should. But when human beings fail human beings, that is part of God failing. And when human beings rescue human beings in advance by creating a safer world, that doesn't mean tsunamis won't happen. It means that fewer people will die. The Southeast Asian tsunami happened way back when and wiped out so many people. It was 200,000 people, right? So. To call out for a supernatural saving, well, who's not going to do that? Even if I have this, this theology that I've come to understand, my own articulated map. It fails because the enormity of the loss is just too much. But having been in the oncology ward, uh, the children's oncology ward of hospitals, one death is too much to deal with. And I call out to that God then too. You know, so... I think that it is easy to be immobilized um, because there's so much that happens in the world. And to call out for miracles is incredibly human. It's also important to not be immobilized because of all the things that happen in the world from doing the things that either you believe God would have you do or you as God are called to do. The question is, will human beings be there for human beings? The levees in New Orleans... The levees failed. It's not just a hurricane, right? The United States failed to save its own people. And all I can say is that God raged and wept. And until we heal it, God is going to continue suffering because of all those dead people that we could have prevented dying. So where God fits into human suffering is a huge question. And I agree, there will be human suffering. There will be supernatural, terrible things. We live on a fault line. How could we not say that? Right? But the question is, are we going to take the necessary precautions to preserve life, which is another way, at least in my theology of saying, to act as God would have us act? I have a question to sort of follow up on a question about Mitzvah. Um, 
there's a much deeper morality at work, obviously, than just relation to the family. And I think sort of the question that it's easy to come by is does God require a, a Jewish sense of morality? But I think it's much more in light of sort of the interaction between the modern world and morality. It's equally important to ask does a Jewish theology or morality require a God? I mean, um, there are many decisions that are being made that we don't have. I mean, decisions that are made in a decade, moral decisions. We don't even understand the questions yet that we'll be presented with in a generation. Um, how does a how does a morality stay linked to a, a God in light of that? I mean, the morality can adapt, but can a concept of a God adapt to that change in morality and that change in challenge? Your first, I don't know if you were asking the first question, but you mentioned it as a question, does a Jewish morality require God? I think the answer is no. A Jewish morality requires humility, that there's something greater than self. Um, some would call that God, but I don't think there needs to be a belief in God in order to have um, humility. Um, you know, even God, <laughs> even God in the prophets um, I think would say in response, how, however silly this is to suggest, that the God of the prophets would say, no, you don't need me, just do the right thing. right? Because the Haftarah that we read on Yom Kippur is indicative of this. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't want them. What I want is for you to walk humbly and to take care of each other. And I've, I've gotten accustomed to saying in, in interfaith gatherings that the God of the prophets wasn't yelling at people to keep kosher. The prophets were yelling at people to take care of orphans and widows and homeless people and, and erase poverty. So how does a morality stay linked to God is a really good question. Another question is, must a morality stay linked to God? And I think no. I actually, frankly, in those conversations, um, and am terrified of the God who, who, people, who people use to define their morality. Because I actually think that sentence was right. They used that God to define their morality. I remember being in a public debate with a scholar in our community named Mitzchia Shaked, who some of us know. She loves Maimonides. She loves Maimonides. <laughs> and I like Maimonides. Um, so that was our debate. I was channeling uh, Heschel as best I could, and she was channeling Yeshayahu Leibovitz, who was a leading Israeli philosopher who loved Maimonides. Um, and I was talking about a god of pathos. That's one of Heschel's big words. It's not his original word, but this idea that God is of love, that God's care is infinite, this transitive concern idea that I shared before. And she, you know, she's very Israeli, and we, we have a, this wonderful, like, very charged friendship. So she, she said to everyone, she said, if anyone says that to you, just ignore them. <laughs> and so, you know, and we were, she was sharing her tea, because actually my throat was sore. So we really, we were having fun with each other, but really pouring out our souls. So then she shared her theology, specifically channeling um, Maimonides and Kierkegaard and Salvechik and others when it came to the binding of Isaac. How is it possible for a, a moral God to command that, the sacrifice of a child? So Kierkegaard's language is the theological suspension of the ethic, right? Because of your faith in God, the shining knight of faith, in Kierkegaard language, um, Abraham suspends his own morality to follow God. And for that, he is praiseworthy. That's 
what Nitzchia was suggesting, uh, in sync with many, many uh, commentaries and theologians. And I said, in, in the same sort of, you know, going at each other, I said, I know that that's a traditional theology, but that's also why people fly into buildings. Because you suspend your own morality to pursue something you think is absolutely true. So must morality be linked to God? I'd rather not. I'd rather an absolutely humanist morality, because God will be happy then. God will be satisfied then. And for someone who doesn't believe in God, humanity will be okay then. And for someone who believes in God in strange ways, that's fine too. Needless death and suffering is the opposite of what anyone's notion of God should want. And ethical humanists should ache for that very same world. So I think ultimately that when we see the world that is, this is language that's worked for me for a while, Gershom Shalom, who was um, the uh, founder, the academic study of Kabbalah, he was really the first scholar of the history of Jewish mysticism, um, defined a mystic in a way that really works for me. He said a mystic is someone who has an intimation of the world as it ought to be, is in tremendous pain because of the world that really is, dedicates their life towards building that world that ought to be, knowing it likely will never happen. That's a decent theology. Right? And you don't even need God for that. So I think we have time for one more question. I have a not so high question. <laughs> You're talking about uh, naming someone in the memory of someone. Mm -hmm. It's really great thing. And also we're talking about for sure, it's a, it's a great question. Part of it is that uh, the Gilgul Neshamot, the, the reincarnation idea, the transmigration of souls, and the naming after someone who has died, is there a connection between the two? And then the complicated reality that the person who I remember might not have been the greatest of people, what is it to saddle someone with that uh, legacy, that very, very complicated legacy. Um, Chaim Potok, in a book called In the Beginning, talks about this. There's a character named David. He always has the young boy in a story who really is Chaim Potok, I think, in many ways. Um, and David is named for a David he didn't know, who died as a partisan, um, but in a very, very complicated moment. So what I would say is, and this is a biblical tradition, Kishmo Kainhu. When you name someone, you name someone with those attributes. And um, I would say, therefore, that perhaps in a way that is hard to discern until over time, maybe it could be seen, um, that if there is something of the soul of the person who has died that is conjured in a beautiful way by the name being given to someone else, then who's to say that that new life's path is, isn't infused by some ancient wisdom that has passed through each of our souls over time. Dara Horn has a beautiful book um, called The World to Come, and she's a wonderful novelist for those who, uh, who haven't experienced her yet. She's really tremendous. And she shares uh, an ancient legend, um, which is actually in a, 
in Midrash Rabbah, I believe, so it's about the year 200, maybe a little bit earlier, that when a person is in the womb, they learn all the wisdom of the universe by a divine light. As they're about to be born, an angel comes and touches them right here. I think this is called the frenulum, actually. And so the reason why we have, or most of us, have an indentation here is because the angel touched us and we forgot. And all of life is a journey of remembering. Um, and so I take both comfort in that and sometimes I'm, I'm terrified by how true that can feel. A moment of recognition of something that I couldn't have known. I know many people have experienced that. Um, so is there something of that? Yeah, and maybe that links us to eternity in one way or another. Maybe whatever we mean by the Spirit is the, um, is the connective tissue through time way beyond the human life.